Welcome to the Chat Cave. As always, thank you for downloading, thank you for streaming, and I hope thank you for subscribing to Coming Up Next, the podcast. If you're not actually subscribing, it's really easy to do. Just uh, jump on iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean, and hit the subscribe button. You can find links to do that at comingupnext.com.au. And uh, if you really want to help me out, you can leave a five-star rating and a review for the show. It really does help keep the momentum of the show going, helps keep the visibility of the podcast high and in what is becoming an increasingly saturated podcast marketplace. We do rely on the goodwill of our audiences, of our listeners, and I know that you are the most faithful, the Coming Up Next network or the Coming Up up Next, uh, you know what, forget it. But please do, please do jump on and do that. My guest this week is uh, one of the most accomplished storytellers going around. Vicky Madden uh, has been a screenwriter in Australia and in the United Kingdom. Uh, Her career has credits including The Flying Doctors, Water Rats, Blue Healers, uh, Blood Brothers, most recently Dr. Blake Murder Mysteries. Uh, She wrote for The Bill, she's written for The Clinic, and uh, she had her own show, The Kettering Incident, which has just done amazing things in Australia for the television world. Uh, I was very lucky to sit down with her not too long ago, just before she went on a European uh, tour with uh, the Screen Producers Association of Australia, um, advocating for Australian television, Australian screen content. Um, But that's enough from me. Once you've uh, done your subscribing and your reviewing, I will uh, hand you over to my interview for this week. Coming up next, episode 118 with Vicky Madden. So you're heading off to Europe tomorrow for, um, for a kind of international television jaunt. Yeah, I'm going with um, SPA, which is a Screen Producers Association, and... Uh, it's to um, head off to Sweden and um, Denmark where we're meeting with um, officials over there and producers because um, Australia still has a, a – we've got a co-production treaty that hasn't quite yet been signed but it's imminent. So uh, we've just been making connections over there and I'm particularly interested in um, in what they do over there because I love all the Scandinavian stuff. Um, and then going to – Germany and um, then up to Edinburgh TV Festival, which will be exciting because the film festival starts there as well, and then into London just to do some catch-up meetings with contacts that I already have. Amazing. It must be, it must be really exciting to, I guess, be in a, at a point in your career where you're able to sort of travel and, and you have these exciting opportunities not only for yourself but also, I guess, for future generations of filmmakers too. Yeah, look, TV has changed a lot in, um, gosh, just the last couple of years in Australia and it's still evolving. You know, we're, we're probably a bit behind the eight ball but... Um, Kettering gave me an enormous um, opening into the world market and I've been surprised how um, quickly it, it's ch- everything has changed because I get more 
uh, I get more contacts and I work with more international people than I do here in Australia now, which is great because it just opens up an enormous amount of opportunity. Um, so it's very exciting. It's exciting and it's crazy, you know, suddenly to be pitching to big American, you know, um, broadcasters. It's it's a bit unnerving, but um, but it's great. It's a great great opportunity, and you have to take it when it's you know when it's offered. How have you seen things change and and move and shift and grow? I suppose not only in uh, in Australia, but you know, having worked in in the UK, in in Britain and Ireland, how have you seen things shift? I guess behind the curtain uh, in television. Um. Because of all this, you know, all the streaming and cable, that has that has opened up diversity in television and how we tell stories on television, and also how we um, approach audiences. So now we can now we can do specific shows that target a specific audience. Where traditionally, and still a lot in in Australia in the smaller markets, you have to make a show that um, potentially reaches from 17 to 65. So you end up getting a broad spectrum of of story that doesn't particularly um, uh, target, you know, one particular audience and it's just sort of a bit of a grabble. So when I worked in the UK, they were already, they're very writer-driven anyway and so I was seeing these big players like I was working with Linda LaPlante and there was Jimmy McGovern and Paul Abbott and uh, people like that who are very well known over there. They're actually as well known as, as actors. You know, people people talk to you about a show um, and they'll say, oh, it's a Paul Abbott show or it's a Jimmy McGovern show or it's a Linda LaPlante show. So that was obviously really enticing because um, you're watching the, the auteur, you know, uh, model um, and seeing these really unusual, interesting um, uh, shows that, that these people make, like Shameless, you know, um, is a good example. Smaller market but uh, a really high reach. So and then, of course, with America, <clears throat> they've got the showrunner model. But even then, you know, they were doing long form, a lot of long form. But now, now we're able to do two parts, four parts, six parts, um, intense story-driven, you know, writer-driven shows and uh, places like HBO um, and AMC, all those big uh, streaming networks have um, just produced some amazing uh, original work, original and bold. So that's starting to peter into Australia. We're much smaller but we are getting, you know, Netflix have come in and Amazon have come in and they're starting to... Um, they're starting to, you know, acquire local content. But also the biggest thing I notice is just not just broadcasters coming in but producers. I'm working with a few American producers on my own shows um, set in Australia but um, they're being very proactive in, in looking for Australian talent um, to put on the world stage. So the Australian voice is definitely petering out into the world. It's remarkable. It's it- it's a great time to be working and making stuff on a on a global scale. I think if you have a, if you have a strong voice and if you have enough, I guess, tenacity to push stuff out into the world. Yeah, look, tenacity is tenacity is exactly the right word. It is not an easy way to make a living. Um, 
it's you know it's high risk and it is brutal it's a brutal industry um and you have to really want to do it especially like i could make a fairly good living um writing on you know on various shows as a as a gun for hire if you like um but i knew a long time ago that i wanted to i wanted to do my own stuff you know i felt like i did have a voice and i I I think there's, you know, different types of writers. Some writers just love to write, you know, and they're fantastic at doing that. And then there's others like myself. I find myself a, a lot stronger as a storyteller and interested in story and, and structure and format and all that. So, um, it's, but it is difficult, you know. I, I live on the seat of my pants a lot and, you know, um, go for, you know, like after Kettering, I went for two years without anything, any money coming in at all. So anything you do make um, is eaten up, you know. So you have to kind of live in a way like a bit like a gypsy, you know. You just have to. We've got you've got you've got money, but it's not going to be there for long unless you hit the jackpot and suddenly, you know, you get a show that that um, that continues on. But it's a hard slog and it's a lot of travel and and yeah, a lot of tenacity and. Um, and and just the will to to want to do it, you know. I have a thing written on my whiteboard that just says "Hold your nerve." <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the heading, yeah. and I just look at it every now and then when I think, "Why am I doing this?" And it's just like you know, you just sort of hope that um, that you get that opportunity. So it's it's a tough way to make a living, but I love it. So do you remember the the first time that you did? tell a story or do you remember the moment that kind of spawned this uh this wanton desire to live by the seat of your pants um not the wanton desire to live by the seat of my pants but definitely in school um I wasn't a great student I was a bit of a daydreamer um but we had this we had English and then we had oral English where you had to get up and tell a story if you wanted to and it was the most hated subject um in school, but I loved it, and I'm quite a shy person by nature. But something in that that opportunity, and even now, even when I hear somebody go "Once upon a time," I get that kind of "Oh, there's going to be a story." <laughs> so, so I think even though I wasn't aware, I wasn't really aware that you could make a, a living as a writer in my high school years. You know, it was always like the options would be a hairdresser or an air steward or something like that. So. But when I look back, I kind of think, oh, yeah, I can see the shapings of it through my childhood. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, but where I, where I decided, I suppose, to take a big risk and sort of go out and have a go was I'd come back from the UK. I'd been working with Linda Plant. I worked on the bill. Then I went over to Ireland and worked there for a couple of years. And through all of that, I was starting to get a sense of meet. I was now meeting these auteur writers, if you like, and listening to them, especially Linda Plant, had a big influence on me. She was my absolute idol, you know, the fact that she was doing her own stuff and had such a great voice and I loved all her work. And she was asking me questions all the time, like, what's your story? What's your interest? And why do you want to be a writer? And how has your childhood affected the way that you write? And all these questions that I thought, well, I don't know. I just work because up till then I was working on you know all the Australian shows and I've you know written about a hundred different types of doctors, a hundred different types of police officers yeah. <laughs> and serial killers and aliens. But 
no one's ever said to me, what's your story? What would you write if you if you could do your own thing? And then when I went to Ireland, I got this huge desire to come back to Tasmania. I'm from here originally. Because a lot of people were, I noticed over there, they're very aware of their, their history and their culture. And they're asking me a million questions. And I just sort of could realise I didn't know enough about my own life. Um, and if I really wanted to be a writer, um, I needed to find a voice. So I came back here a few years ago now, four years ago, I think, and um, and I just thought I'd write a feature because we hadn't quite, in Australia, we weren't at that point where there was an opportunity to do these short-run um, high-end uh, stories. So I started writing a feature and then I met um, Vincent Sheehan who had just worked in Tasmania and he loved it but he couldn't quite grasp the culture or the, the place because it is a very clannish place like any island um, and he knew that he had to work with somebody from Tasmania to really get under the skin of it. So I had just returned and um, at that point and so Screen, Australia, Screen Tasmania sorry, um, said to him, look, you know, a writer has just returned, why don't you go and speak to her? So he sort of came up and we met and um, and he said, you know, look, Foxtel now are looking for stuff. Why don't we go in there? And Fox, Foxtel had been doing some stuff but they hadn't really done an original drama, you know, they were doing Wentworth, which was doing really well for them, but Wentworth was, a, you know, derived from Prisoner. So we just went in there and pitched it. It was kind of a high concept, pretty out there sort of idea, but fundamentally it was, it was um, my story about a girl coming back to, you know, her hometown and realising that she doesn't belong and what that means, you know, what, what we call home. And so I took a lot of elements in Kettering of my um, of my home. So it's very character-driven, even though people would call it high concept, high genre, high concept. But fundamentally it is about people who, who you know, live in a home and don't quite belong there and, and um, have to kind of find a way to exist, you know, which is very much uh, watching my mother grow up. Um, my mother, when I was growing up, she was a single mother, came out as a 10-bob pom, and my dad left when I was a baby. So seeing this woman struggling with two children tr- with, with no money, no support, when there was, wasn't a time where, you know, fathers um, uh, paid, paid money and stuff. So it, it was a very, very difficult, um, harrowing childhood of having no home sometimes living in the car and watching my mother and it when I kind of thought what is my voice I think that terror and fear of childhood of not you know not belonging anywhere going to a hundred different schools and watching my mother be an outcast a big outcast it was very difficult for her um, and tapping into that and that's when I kind of thought you know, and I'd seen while I was in the UK, I, I had been um, closely watching Life on Mars, which was being made while I was over there. And, and immediately that that uh, splicing of genre, if you like, you know, the, the crime show with the supernatural had this huge appeal for me. I just kind of thought that's what I want to do, you know, that I want to try that and and do something really quite different. And as I was doing Kettering, I really felt like I was finding my voice. I was very excited about, 
you know, this this genre. And since then I've, you know, now working on two or three other shows that have got a similar, you know, similar kind of genre elements in melding two genres together. You mentioned that, uh, you know, growing up was you, you had, uh, I guess, a bit of a gypsy sort of quality to your life. How much do you think that sort of uh, influenced your... Um, your ability and the way that you would go on to tell stories and to write? Um, I think it had a, a much bigger influence than I realised, actually. Partly partly the lifestyle that I live now, you know, that I've, um, I've always got one foot out the door, I think yeah. <laughs> has my childhood, my childhood prepared me for that kind of gypsy lifestyle and that's what you really have to do. You know, my my first, the last, you know, 10, 15 years of my life building up to this, I've had to live in, you know, I've lived all around Australia and I've lived, you know, in the UK and Ireland all for work. So, um, and you have to do that in a way to, I would not have been had the opportunities had I not been able to move to those places. So on that level, uh, you know, and I've always been a very restless person. I think that's because of my childhood. But also the loneliness of, of my childhood, I think, gave me this imagination. You know, I used to have an incredible, and my mother still says to people, you know, oh, my God, she's all her life she's been telling stories and now somebody's actually paying her to do it. <laughs> and my mum tells, tells all these stories about, you know, when I was young and I, she said your, your imagination was always your strongest point. Um, and, you know, I, would, I was, when I was eight, I was, married to Robert Redford and we had a milk bar and he was a jackaroo, he was a jackaroo and I was, you know, running the milk bar. So I was obsessed when I was little, I was obsessed with cash registers, you know, the big, beautiful old-fashioned cash registers and um, typewriters. And I, my house is full of old typewriters because I just love them. So from, I think from being alone a lot, being always being uh, kind of, you know, on the outside of any town we were living in. And one year I didn't even go to school for grade four at all because mum was moving so much around and we found she found a job cleaning this woman's house in the middle of Tasmania and, and it just I just couldn't get to school. So I didn't go to school for a year. So um, we had books sent over and, you know, and I just kind of, really, really was on my own, if you like. And so I think it really did prepare me for for um, this particular gypsy life, you know, and tapping into my, I mean, I spend a lot of time by myself and I prefer I live by myself, I, I live inside my head and I travel a lot. So I'm very much that, I get very restless and, you know, when I was married I found it incredibly difficult to, to live in a house with somebody else. Yeah. So it's just like. <laughs> Can you go and do something else? You know, go and build a barbecue or something. Um, so I realised, you know, I think your upbringing does have a lot to do with, uh, especially if you can tap into it. I mean, it was very hard for me to go back and examine my life as a child because I think the reason I'd been away from Tasmania so long was to put memories, you know, harrowing memories behind me. Um, and, you know, getting to like early 20s when you start to realise, you know, when you start having relationships, oh, I'm not very good at this and, you know, having issues I hadn't thought about um, from my childhood. So being a writer, 
you really do have to, for people to connect to your work, you really have to be honest with yourself and you have to lay a lot out. So it's a very taxing job on on your on yourself you know you're 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 opening your your whole painful life for people to examine but that's the only way people can connect with your story you know I I watch stuff and I can immediately turn off after 10 minutes because you think this this is ridiculous you know the story is not truthful and it doesn't matter what sort of story it could be about zombies but as long as the writer is is tapping into uh, something that is honest, then uh, people at home, they'll watch it, and they, even if they don't understand why they love the show so much, part of it is speaking to them. You know, my next show is similar um, territory to Kettering, but it's it's sort of more honed in on lingering grief, is, is which is always a difficult pitch, you know. It's yeah. like <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing a comedy here. But, um, but I find it fascinating the way we live with pain and we we don't realise we are, you know, unless there's a crisis in our life or something bad happens. But we all live with things. And as a writer, you get this extremely privileged position to be able to pull it apart <clears throat> and um, examine it and and write about it. And you really become, you know, you, you realise how much self-awareness you don't have until until you have to face you know your 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 life and so for me it's been extremely helpful being a writer because I've managed to put a lot of things to rest and to be able to understand myself and I think you know that's part of our life story is to get to a point where you go do you know what it's okay to want to live your life like this or it's okay to be who you are and I think that's what storytelling is all about people are looking for some kind of answers or some kind of connection so it's a great privilege to have an opportunity to have a career where you can um, connect with people like that do you do you recall uh, so you started working for Crawford's in the 80s um, on um, on the flying doctors mm. Do you recall what the kind of process was and and how you how you got your first job as a screenwriter? Yeah, it was interesting actually because I was at Channel Ten um, in the uh, uh, newsroom and thinking at that point I thought I wanted to be a, a journalist because I think this yearning to tell stories was there, but I wasn't quite sure what what was available, you know, and, and work-wise, because I hadn't had a great education, I had to kind of t- uh, take what I could get. And I was a great typist because I love typewriters so much. So I've always been a really fast typist, even when I was young. So that's kind of got me in the door a lot of places. And um, so when I was in the newsroom at Channel 10, Neighbours came to Channel 10, you know, Channel 7 had axed it and Channel 10 picked it up. And so suddenly all the um, Neighbours crew were uh, landed on our doorstep and um, and I befriended Peter O'Brien, who was one of the actors in the show, and he came over to my place one night. He was going out with my flatmate. Um, they were going out for an evening out and I didn't want to go, so they went out and he left his script there, his neighbour's script, and... Um, they went off and I saw this script and, you know, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but that moment where, you know, everything in your life had comes to that moment. You know, I opened this 
script and I looked at it and it was almost like that's what I wanted. What is this? Who does this? You know, so I sat up till they got home. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning. And I said, who wrote this? Who wrote this? And he's like, I don't know, the writers, you know. So I kind of started there and I just – and he was about to move across to Crawford's for Flying Doctors. And um, so he I, – I said to him, can you just find out who I could call? So he did, um, surprisingly enough, and I contacted – it was HR that I had to apply to. And they were looking for someone who could type – catch up with scripts for three months they were behind in scripts and I I said I'd really like their job and this woman was really concerned for me I think she said you can't give up a promising career in the newsroom for a three-month job it's just three months I said no 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 I really want it so she made me sleep on it and I eight o'clock the next morning I called her and I said to her, I still want the job. And she was really reluctant to give it to me because I think she she was concerned, you know. And But I'd never been so sure of something in my life. So that while I was doing that, I just had this enormous uh, sense of confidence with the – I'd read all the scripts and I caught up. I did my job, the three-month job, in about a month because I was reading all the scripts. And, and at that point I was talking to this, the story producer because, you know, ignorance is a great thing as well and I didn't realise that that probably isn't the right thing to do. But I went into him one day and I said to him, this script is terrible. And he said, <laughs> he said right, why? And I said, because I knew what was going to happen in the first ten scenes and this is, you know, it's just dreadful. You can't do this story. So he said to me, what would you do? And I told him what I would do. And anyway, he just said, okay, thanks very much. And the next morning I was called into the producer's office and it started to dawn on me there that I could be in trouble and I might be about to get fired. And the story producer was in there and he said, tell tell Stanley what you what you told me yesterday. And I went, oh, I didn't mean to, I wasn't try, I, I didn't mean to be rude. Maybe I was, but he said, no, 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 just tell him what you said. So I told him, you know, what I would do to fix the script, but I was absolutely sure I was being fired. And and um, Stanley sat there, he was a producer, and sat there and listened for a while. And then basically from that they gave me uh, a cadetship, you know, or uh, to go on as a trainee script editor. Um, so, and I was there for four years. So that was my, that was my first big break. But, but when I started, you know, of course, like everyone, I just wanted to write a script. And I had a, a story producer, a new story producer came in and he ended up being a very big mentor for me because he said to me, you know, you, 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 you're not a great writer, but you're quite a good storyteller. And what you need to do in this business is to be really, really good at one thing, like know what you're really good at and be very, very good at it so that when people talk about uh, storytellers, your name becomes synonymous with that. You see, because if you go out and just be a writer, you know, you're competing with a lot of people. It's not your biggest strength, storytelling is, so be do that. And I was furious because I just wanted to write a script. But, you know, my God, when I look back and you look at pivotal points in your life, that was a pivotal moment because had I not listened to him and gone out and tried to be a writer, I would have failed. I wouldn't be here today. But he trained me up over a couple of years of just intense, you know, storytelling in the in the writers' room with writers coming in, and then eventually I would um, develop that skill. and And then later, like he said, later you can, you know, start writing. But once you're really good at this, and that's what I did. And 
found that I was a much better writer because I'd been doing this so long. So that's sort of how my career developed. And the one thing I think in this industry is a lot of people don't understand that there are really different disciplines. Like to be a storyteller is quite a different role to being a writer. You can be one or the other in quite significant ways. Like, you know, there are people that are fantastic writers. You give them a story and they just write the most amazing dialogue and they can be fast at it and turn it around quite quickly. But when you leave them with a story to to develop themselves, the story is all over the shop. Similarly, you can get people that are very good storytellers and not great writers. And they're different disciplines. And I think emerging writers, I try to instill that whenever I do a teaching gig, I try and really instill that and say, you know, don't try and go out there and just um, write something without some form of discipline or, or understanding why you want to be a writer and what you're good at, what you're most good at. Because if you can do one thing, you will always be able to get work in that particular field. But if you go out and you're a bit of a splatter gun, you know, you can do this a bit, you're okay as a writer, it's very competitive, especially now more than ever. And you have to be really good at what you do. So um, I think that was, that for me was when I look back, I think, my God, that was just the most incredible bit of advice I think I've ever been given. So you... You know, you would go on to work on, you know, some some of the biggest shows in Australia, you know, Water Rats and, and Blue Healers, um, recently, you know, Dr. Blake. Uh, what was the kind of thinking when you decided to up stumps and move to, uh, move to Britain um, to work on the bill? Well, I'd done uh, a couple of things happened at once. I got... I got the gig of story producer on Halifax FP, which was the biggest uh, show in Australia at the time. And my ex-husband had made me put a thing on the fridge, on my fridge, saying <clears throat> um, he was always annoyed because um, he was always from the belief of, you know, you've got to believe in yourself and you've got to be positive thinking and blah, blah, blah. And I come from a I'm never good enough and I have to work twice as hard and blah, blah, blah. So he made me put on the fridge a statement when the day would come, what I'd have to do to be able to then say to myself, you're successful. So I put on the fridge, um, if I ever became a story producer of Halifax, I would then have to say I was successful. (laughs) So that day came. It actually coincided with the day that he left, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) Um, So that was a kind of a really big turning point in my life and working on um, Halifax was a really big challenge for me it was a, a very big step up and um, and Roger Simpson who was a creative uh, he was a writer producer um, he when we got to the end of Halifax Linda LaPlante had seen the show and the show was wrapping up at nine it was on its last season and um so Linda planted, um, taken an interest in reviving it but spreading it out to a bigger show. So Roger Simpson and I went to London for three weeks to work with her in developing this idea. And Roger let me sort of take the lead on that and recreate the show in a bigger way. Anyway, it didn't work out because of funding and all that that goes with those sorts of things. And we came back. And I was sort of at that, you know, point now of having to resurrect my life and move from Queensland where I was living and, you know, there was a lot of changes going on in my life. And then one day I just got 
an email, um, which I still have somewhere pinned up on my wall, and it, it was from Linda LaPlante. And she said, you know, I've been thinking about you, think, you know, you've, you were so good over here, very impressive, and I know you're a crossroads in your life and, you know, we've got a spare desk here if you kind of ever thought that you'd like to give it a go and come over. And it was such a big thing for me to do. Um, you know, it was massive and I, I kind of, I knew it was one of those things I had to do and she was the person, you know, if ever there was somebody who was uh, kind of inspirational to me, it was her. So it was kind of, uh, you know, I couldn't believe it really, but I, I did it. I went over and worked with her for a year and then through her I met a lot of contacts obviously and um, uh, then there it was like a one-year contract and she um, she knew the people on the bill and the bill was going through this very um, strange period where the it was nearly it was about to be axed and it had gone really soapy and um and it was on its last legs, basically. And just by chance, somebody had, uh, someone from ITV had said to Linda, we really want to, if we were to keep the bill going, because Linda was a big, you know, she was a big um, support for the, for the show, as everybody is in, in the UK. And um, she, and they said, we need, we need to resurrect it as a crime show, though it's gone really soapy and blah, blah. And so she said, look, I've got this Australian girl who's working with me but she's really, really good at crime, she'd be perfect. So, but it was very daunting. It was like a show that had been on for 20 years and and I, I used to watch it when I was little with my mum but I didn't watch it a lot and I think I knew the theme song more than the show. And so I, you know, spent a week just watching as many episodes as I could and then I had to go in and pitch why I would be really good at this job and what my plan was and what my voice would be. And then there was like, you know, a lot of outcry when I got the job in the papers about, because, you know, over there, the big shows like The Bill and Coronation Street, they get a lot of press because um, they're just so many millions of people watch it. And so when I got the job, there was an outcry that an Australian was taking over The Bill. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And you know, it was it was huge. It was forty four writers and about fifteen scripters. The biggest um, uh, story department in the world, and still is, I think. Still, you know, it still has that record, which I didn't kind of understand when I took the job. Otherwise, I might not have taken it. <laughs> so, so for two years, it was a it was incredibly intense. I, I just worked seven days a week, very high-level stress and very high, um, you know, risk and trying to do stories that were original. Um, but I got a flavour. I started to feel that um, even though it was really, really difficult, what I started to feel was the respect that you get as as a story producer over there and, and you know, writers in general. Um, so even though, you know, you'd have shows, have episodes that weren't... Um, perfect and people would sort of hop on to help sort it out rather than you know in Australia you can get fired really quickly or but there it's like a sense of well it's a hard job we all understand that let's pull together and make it work and 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 when you do do a really good job um, you get a lot of praise so I started to feel that sense of wow this job can be fantastic um, and people can be you know it's a job where you can get a lot of respect and you can 
have your own voice in a funny way. And, you know, there's a lot of stories on the bill that I can, you know, absolutely say, oh, my God, that's my stamp on that. So that was probably the start of um, a sense for me that this is what I wanted to do. And the fact that I survived two years, um, I kind of thought when I got off there, I thought, okay, I think now I am pretty feel pretty confident I can run a show myself. And then went... Uh, went to Ireland, similar thing, a show was at the end of its run and somebody from the bill had mentioned my name to somebody over there. So um, it was a similar thing, deconstructing a show and building it up from the ground up. Um, And that's where all my storytelling strengths came, you know, really were honed, I suppose. And, um, and yeah, so from there, and I'd worked, you know, I did a few story rooms over there um, because they do sometimes, you get offered to just go on to a random show like Waking the Dead or Silent Witness or whatever just for a few days as a storyteller, you know, not not sort of working on the show as such, just being an extra voice. And that was that was really good. So, you know, yeah, I just kind of, it was funny because I always thought, I came back to Australia and um, and immediately wanted to move back because I could see, you know, I wasn't going to get the same opportunities here. But um, I got a telly movie when I came home, but I was still packed, you know, I was still going home. And it was really just, you know, thinking about, like I said, while I was in Ireland, thinking about my life as a child and all the questions I'd been asked while I was over there, Um I thought I'll just try and hang out and stay with my mum. You know, she's getting older now and write this film. And then I met Vincent and the Kettering incident happened. So I ended up staying here. And now I kind of feel in that four years, five years since I've been back, I've felt now that even though I do, I really miss the UK. I think my mother being, well, she's Welsh, not English, but the fact that I've been brought up by a, a you know, a Welsh mother and then living over there for, you know, four or five years, um, I really feel a yearning for um, that, for the UK. So, but now, now because of Kettering and Kettering did really well both in the UK and in America, surprisingly for us, but um, I, I don't have to um, feel like I have to move over there now. I still would at some time, you know, um, I've got dogs now, so when my dogs, <laughs> when my dogs are sort of dominating my life at the moment, but but you don't, I don't need to now. I feel like I've paid my dues. I've got a lot of contacts all around the world, and you know, I Skype about three or four times a week to different producers. Now in America, America wasn't sort of a, a market that that wasn't that it didn't interest me. I just didn't really know it that well, and. But now I, I'm doing two shows um, with uh, American producers and I've got two shows in development in um, uh, in the UK. So, you know, with the with with Skype and being able to travel a bit more, um, I feel now that yeah, in Australia you can be on the on the world stage uh, without having to live over there. I think that's the biggest most significant uh, thing that Kettering's given me. That's incredible. Um, how did what was the I guess the the, the literal process of, of getting Kettering the Kettering incident up off the ground? Um, it's obviously a, a longer process, but I guess it was the first time that you were 
getting your own show up off the ground. Yeah, it was the first my first kind of outing as a producer, I suppose. Um, and Vincent Sheehan was a, the, the really the really interesting thing for us coming together. We didn't know each other before we started working together. Um, and he, Vincent's from a, a um, uh, from a film background, and is more you know he he's very in tune with the markets and doing all the budgetary things as well. So he had that side covered, and you know Porchlight, a very, very well known. Um, but small company, um, but they hadn't done TV before. So between the two of us, we brought our own skill sets to the table um, and also what we both knew, um, I was very adamant and Vincent agreed with me. I didn't want to do a really, I was noticing even our feature films were still really Australian uh, and we do that, you know, we do that kind of bent that it has to be Ocker okay, kind of Australian. Um, and I said to Vincent, you know what, I really don't want to, I don't want it to feel Australian in a funny way, even though it's set here and it's Australian story, but I, I just I just want to come at it with a different voice, you know, with a kind of focus more on the themes and the, and the story rather than having these identifiable Australian kind of country People and he agreed, and we 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 very quickly realised that we both had very similar um, uh, ideas of bringing in a you know really um, interesting DOP and and directors that were going to give us um, what we wanted from the story, which was you know my word for the show was melancholy. So we had tonal meetings and talked a lot about the look of the show to to really elevate it to a a beautiful filmic um, series rather than, you know, um, a typical TV. We didn't have any studios. It was all location. And for me writing it, it was approaching it from maybe more um, filmically writing it that, you know, there was a lot of um, uh, white space. I didn't want to... um, I didn't want to be uh, dialogue heavy, which you kind of more are in TV, um, and let the sto- you know let the pictures tell the story and come at it from a much much more filmic point of view, and really dwell on the themes of the show, you know. So um, with the sense of disconnection and the sense of mystery in this strange part of the world, um, drawing us in without relying always on people answering questions like I said to everybody right from the get-go you know I'm not going to explain anything in this show and this is what I really learned from the Scandies I suppose I I just absolutely loved all the Scandies shows going back to Wallander and the Eagle and um, you know the unit shows before the big ones like the killing and the bridge there were shows that I used to watch with my mother and she loved them as well and there's you know there's very little dialogue and in they never explain what's going on you have to really watch and understand it and come at it from your own point of view and your own you know you have to bring something as a viewer to the to the understanding of the show and just really delving into the themes of uh, the story more than this is a plot driven story, so it was quite ambitious and bold. And Foxtel were great; um, they sort of let us tell the story we wanted to tell. Um, I think there was a few frazzled nerves around the place now and then, but um, 
But certainly when we started looking at the shots, it, it just was spectacular. And we knew that we were going to show a part of Australia that people hadn't seen before in story, which was, um, you know, my Tasmania, I suppose. And, you know, even now people, when I go and do talks about catering, people say, you know, that it's not really the Tasmania I grew up with that I imagine. And I thought, but that's fantastic because this was, this is my, my story, you know, and for me, my childhood was scary and um, erratic and frightening. And I wanted to, I wanted to embrace that with the sense of the Gothic, you know, and bring in the darkness of the isolation and having shots that just stand, you know, the opening shot of Kettering for me sets the tone so well. This is an isolated, um, rough terrain, um, violent place, you know, and that to me is really important um, to, to be able to... Sp- you don't then have to have characters saying how they feel. They just, you sense it through the story. So I think coming at it that way, it was a great experience um, creatively. It was a challenge. You know, it was the first TV show filmed down here, so we had to bring a lot of the crew in. Um, the locations were tricky and, um, you know, uh, dangerous at times. I think the first day we started shooting, our unit truck got tipped over, got stuck in a dip. dip. (laughs) So we're kind of thinking, what are we doing here? Um, But, um, you know, and a lot of it was a lot of the weather and a lot of the what we were trying to achieve, especially in the supernatural realm, meant that there was a lot of um, unknowables, you know, and, and so, you know, we did have a few budget problems and we did take some big risks. But, you know, and again, high levels of stress, but you get to the end of it and and look back and and you think, you know, it's always going to be hard when you're trying to do something that's groundbreaking, you know, something that breaks through. And and I think that's what Kettering did, you know, whether you liked it or not. um, I think the world recognised that um, Australia was starting to move in a different direction with television. Uh, So I'm proud of that. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's remarkable, um, and and to kind of do it in uncharted territory as well, uh, must yeah, have, must have presented was, huge challenges. It was a much much bigger than I think people you know would realize doing something like that, and but you know you get through it, you find you 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 just decide you know we've we've built this, we've got to finish it. So it was good, it was great. I saw um I saw in uh, in some of my reading that you kept a lot of the uh the script and the arcs and and kind of crescendos of um of story beats away from everyone not not only um the crew but also the cast. Uh what was the kind of thinking behind that? So the thinking behind that was twofold. First of all, when I worked in the UK, I had been in a, a story room where they were doing a six-parter and it was the first time that I had um, that that I'd seen this format, I suppose. And one of the big things that had happened there at that time was that they were they were shooting the first two episodes, and um, one of the crew or one of the cast, because they 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 all knew where it was going, leaked the storyline to the press, and. Because it's only six parts, 
it's diabolical when you get someone to watch the beginning of the show. It's like watching Game of Thrones and knowing how it ends. Yeah. You know? But it's short form, so it's much more immediate. So they literally threw out the scripts and started again. And it really, it really threw me to see that happen. It really made me go, wow, that is just, we would never be able to do that in Australia. We just do not have that money. So it had been in my mind about how tenuous it was. However, we did, I did share a few things with, um, with a couple of people close to the production and sure enough, um, uh, one of the actors came in to see me a few days later and she said, oh, you know, I found out that I'm the person who, you know, is, is, is the killer. And um, I was furious because, A, I knew that would leak out that would get out eventually to the press before we stopped started shooting, and um, and I didn't really want the actress to know because it influences people. I think I see actors when they know they're wrong, so that was one. That was what. So I literally started again, but I was only in early stage development at that point, and that was when I said to Vincent, "You know what." No one is going to know who what the outcome of this show is, and in fact, no one's going to know anything till we get till they get the scripts. Because the other part of that reasoning was that, again, you know, in the UK, this the and America, the the actors don't know what's coming, and there's a reason for doing that. And and I really like the reasoning is that it's kind of like the way we live our lives. You know, you don't know what's going to happen to you today or tomorrow we live our lives with this you know expectation of what we know but then things happen to us and things change on a dime and we have to adapt really quickly when we hear news or something doesn't go as planned so I wanted to have that experience for the for the actors to to not know um what was coming up next because I felt like it would give them a sense of living in the moment and, and working in the moment with their scripts and, and understanding who they were in the moment. That said, I spent an, a, a huge amount of time with every actor by themselves one-on-one and before we started filming. And I talked to them about um, my life as a child and the, the place that I was basing this on and the sense globally or thematically, I guess, that I was trying to explore, which was even though people live in small towns, they can be very lonely. And that's what this show is about, disconnection. And so all these characters were somehow affected by loneliness and that was a core element of the story, that they all are living a lie or living with a mask. And then... Every single character was derived from somebody I knew in my childhood. So I would talk to the actor a lot about the character. So the actors had a lot of information about themselves, um, even more so they understood their characters more than even the directors did. So they could have discussions with the director and say, you know, I wouldn't wouldn't do that or, you know, or they'd come back to me and say, look, you know, I've been asked to do this, but I really don't think I would do that. And so they were taking control of their characters, which is enormously um, gratifying for them. And and I feel, you know, you're going to get a better performance the more those people know who they are. Um, but what they didn't know is even though they knew who they were and they knew the town, they knew the 
you know, the basics of their relationships with every single person in the town and their backstories. They didn't know what was coming every episode. So every time we had a read-through, the actors would grab their scripts and they'd all go out to dinner after on the Friday and discuss the story and think, what do you think is going on? <laughs> and and Tilly uh, Coburn Harvey, she, she was delightful. She came in to me one day and she goes, oh, my God, this is like getting a book chapter by chapter. She said, oh, my God, we have no idea where this is going and, and um, it's really scary and, and I'm so worried about Eliza, her character. You know, I'm really worried that this is going to happen to her and I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you know, hold that worry, be concerned for her because, you know, that's how you're feeling about the script. That's what I want you to play, you know. So, so you know, the directors found it challenging and some of the actors did. And interestingly, some of the older actors struggled with it more than the younger ones. Um, the younger ones loved the, the experience and, and really embraced not knowing. And, and then, you know, slowly I think people cottoned on. And Elizabeth was the only one, Elizabeth Debicki and I would have lunch once a week. Uh, and we would we had a very close relationship where we talked a lot about Anna and she was incredible because there was a lot of pain in the scripts at times for her journey that I'd used out of my own life and not necessarily the same situation but a moment where I tried to really mine moments in my life that were painful or, or isolating and use them. And she was just incredible. She, every, and she was only 23 when she made Kettering, which is absurd when I think of what I was like at 23. She's a real old soul. And her script sense is incredible. And she would come to me and say, there's this line here in the middle of the script. I just feel like there's something behind it. And she was spot on every time. It was incredible how she would just pluck them out. But she knew Anna really well and she did know where it was going. Um, and but she was the only one who knew, and and you know I think a lot of the power of her performance came in this stillness of the the grief of her character, of the the painful isolation of her character. And you know I took everything away from her. Not one person gave her any information that she needed. She she had to work for it, which was really challenging for me as a writer as well because I kept writing her into a corner and thinking oh my god you know I don't know how I'm going to get her out of this you know by the time I got to episode seven um, I got her in such a position where I thought what would she do now and when I realized what she would do it created a really big problem for me and it was like two o'clock in the morning and I had to deliver the script the next morning and I was really really panicked so I had to kill a character <laughs> to stop her getting some information huh. So about 8 o'clock the next morning I had to ring Vincent and say, you know, I've had to kill someone. And he's like, what? Who have you killed? And I told him who I killed. And he goes, what did you kill him for? I mean, if anyone was listening in the conversation, my God, you know, I would have been arrested because we were having this. He goes, what do, what, what do you have to kill him for? And I said, because that's what Anna would have, she would have gone to him and he has the answer and blah, blah. So I had to kill him. And he goes, couldn't he have gone out of town? And I said, no, because we've kind of established this world where there's nowhere to go out of town. You know, this is it kind of thing. So it was a real challenge for me, but I really wanted to honour that that idea and all the, the things I'd learnt about 
uh, and what Vince Gilligan says a lot on Breaking Bad is that you can't make it easy for yourself as a writer. You've got to put the character in the most perilous position and then your job is to find the solution to get them out. So, you know, a lot of the time I was pushing myself as well. So, you know, even though I knew where I wanted to go, I didn't have all the answers because they, you know, presented themselves as I was writing. So, so yeah, it was an interesting exercise and interesting as in, in Australia we find that really unusual, but in America and the UK they do it. It's, it's just common ground. So I just kind of stuck to my guns even though I had to take a bit of flight for it. Yeah, and I guess it's also important that you do approach things with uh, an open mind so that you're not kind of stuck in a particular way of thinking about how things should play out or, or you kind of um, you, you have that fluidity. Exactly. You need it. You know, you need it to push yourself. And if you have this right's got to end here and this is what's going to happen, you know, you your breakdown can only be a roadmap. But your characters, I mean, it sounds cliche to say this but your characters really do come alive and start guiding you to what they do you know the better you get to know them um the better you know the more choices they make for you on the page so by the time I I think six seven and eight episode six seven eight I wrote really fast partly because we were so behind um but partly because I was on this kind of adrenaline craziness um I'm sure I was half mad by then but it really had come alive for me then and I was really – but things were really surprising coming out of left field and, um, uh, and you know, it was my first attempt as well at, at Supernatural and that was an enormous challenge and especially when you've got people going, I don't understand this, what is that? And I go, well, it's – and, I you know, a great fan of David Lynch and um, David Lynch has this great saying that if you try to explain the supernatural, it just dissolves in the palm of your hand. And it's so true. Um, you just have to have a world where you believe these things happen and then, you know, use that. But it was quite new for our directors and, you know, there was a lot of questions like, but I don't understand, what is that? And I go, well, it's supernatural. And you know what David Lynch says. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I just had to use that for a while and just go with it you know but I did have my you know there were there was a lot of um there was quite a bit of uh, uh reaction to it and, and resistance to it and um the ending was controversial and you know Foxtel were a bit um uh, you know concerned about the ending but you just have to do what you think is right and stick to guns and have, you know, have faith. And it's kind of an interesting show because the way I see it when I sometimes I jump into a fan page and not always because it can be distressing, but what I loved about it was straight away people were trying to work it out themselves, which was great. And the first couple of weeks was everyone going, what the hell was that? What was that ending? But the interesting thing was about two weeks afterwards, and I was thinking, oh, my God, I was wrong, but people started watching it again and then this huge dialogue started where people were going, no, it's you know what's happening if you watch it again. So I got that really good response the second time round, and, and in the States it travelled a lot better in the world, I think, than it did here. It did really well here, really well for Foxtel, really, really well. But in the States I felt like they got it quicker and a lot more and Amazon loved it. They were thrilled with it and... Um, 
their audience really responded well to it. So it's interesting to watch as it goes around the world, like it's in Europe at the moment, and you jump on the fan page and you see these Polish people talking about it and um, their views and things. So it's, you know, it's quite fascinating to see how um, how people reacted to it. But ultimately it's been, it's been very well received in terms of storytelling, so I'm happy about that because it was a big risk, I think. Yeah. Could have e- easily been the other way. <laughs> how, <laughs> how do you define or how would you define the show as a success? Well, you can put it in, in two ways. It's... Um, I think it's been a, it's been a really big success in terms of winning every major award in Australia. We won Series Mania in uh, France. Um, I did a tour of the US um, and you know got got CAA, the biggest agents, um, over there representing me. Meeting, getting, I got meetings with HBO and FX and Netflix and everybody wanting to do stuff. So on a personal level and on an awards level, it's been hugely successful. Uh, it was Fox Hill's highest rating show, so it did really well there. So as a whole, I would say it couldn't have gone any better really for me. Um, and I think Vincent feels the same. And, you know, we've, we've both really been um, thrilled with, especially the recognition of awards and... Um, uh, and given us, you know, me especially, great opportunities to kind of do what I want next, whatever I want to do next. So I, I, I would rate it fairly high up there as a, as a, a life success. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely sounds like it. And um, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what does come next. Um, good luck on, the, uh, on, on your European jaunt. Um, and I really yes. am, uh, am very grateful for your time and for your insights uh, on on the podcast, I uh, I finish all of my conversations with the same question, and that question mm-hmm. is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? I think being a writer makes me silly. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, going into people's lives and sitting. The other night, I was actually at a restaurant and I was watching this couple, which I get very intrigued by people in restaurants. You know, I try and work out what's going on and create a whole life for them. Um, and this guy had this very deep scar down his cheek and I think I spent most of the night trying to work out what that scar was from and uh, never did find out obviously I wasn't going to ask him but <laughs> but I kind of find my life living in a bit of a story world you know so I think that's what makes me silly yeah <laughs> it's a silly way to make a living in a way oh absolutely <laughs> the creative mind never stops exactly exactly thank you so Noisy much noisy head You're welcome. Thank you for having me.